Hi everyone, Josh from the Narrate team here. This weekend, Adam starts a new series titled Gifting Wonder. Adam asks the question, what is the value of a question? And looks to the text for examples of the power of wonder. So, what was the, what's the greatest gift you've ever received? Uh, assuming it wasn't a piece of lingerie, and if it was, you wouldn't tell us. Uh, what's the next greatest gift you've ever received? Will, will you think about that for just a second? Or, or at least among the greatest gifts you've ever received? See, when we get our brains turning there, then I think what we can start to ask is another layer of questions, which is what, like, what makes a great gift a great gift? Have you ever thought of this? Uh, sometimes a gift is great because of what it is, right? Like, like an Apple product, or cash, or... I think that's kind of it, isn't it? Like an Apple product or cash. Like, so sometimes it's great because of, of what it is. Sometimes it's great because of... Like, like, like sometimes a gift is like, like cheese or wine. Like it gets better with age, you know what I mean? Like, like so when it was given to you and they were four, it wasn't that big a deal. But now that they're 14, you, you kind of treasure it. Now that they're 24, so sometimes, sometimes it was given to you and then now, now they're gone. Like they've, they've passed, they've went on to be with the Lord, and suddenly that thing that was handed to you by, by a grandparent or a parent or even a child, suddenly that thing that seemed relatively insignificant at the time is among your deepest treasures. I, I have this football helmet on display at my house. And it, it, you know, when you grow up and like grandpa and grandma always have that box of toys, right? And that box of toys is always suspect and aged and the batteries are corroded and nothing works. And uh, I spent a lot of time at my grandpa's house growing up. And in that box of toys was this football helmet that I was always told was my dad's, which didn't have a face mask. So it was from that era. You know, those of you who may remember it, it had like these leather ear things and this leather chin strap and no face mask. And then years later, I had my kids at my grandpa's house. And so that was their great grandpa. And, you know, the suspect box of toys was even more suspect 20 years later or whatever it was. And my kids were playing with that, that football helmet. And I still have this memory of like getting in what was probably our 1996 Outback at the time. And my grandpa walking up and the boys had left it in the front yard and he walked up and, and he said, here, you guys should take that. And at the time, I'm sure I was thinking, oh, just what I need, another piece of stuff to throw into my house. But not like now that he's gone uh, and that the boys don't know it was given to them, it wasn't given to me, it was given to them, but I'm claiming it. Like, right, it's, this, it's this treasure. So, sometimes, sometimes what makes a great gift is, is, is the fact that it was given to you at a time of year where you don't normally get gifts, right? I mean, this is kind of the gift season and uh, there's Christmas and that's fantastic and there's your birthday. But have you ever noticed like sometimes what makes a gift extraordinarily special is that it wasn't given on either Christmas or your birthday. Like, and you just kind of unexpected it. Sometimes a gift is great because like who gave it to you? Because it's that like, you, you knew that you guys were friends or, you, you know, you knew there was a relationship, but it's like, really, you, you, you got me a gift. And there's that, you know, you know what I mean? Like just that sense of like, whoa, uh, like Elaine Bennis, like we just jumped friendships levels all in one moment. Like you just, you just got me a, a, a gift. I mean, there's, there's lots of reasons that a gift can be great, isn't there? And really you guys, my design, our design for this series that's going to lead us right up to Christmas Eve uh, is I, I want to get us thinking, at least initially, I want to get you thinking about this suggestion, and that is, what, what, if, what if the greatest gift you've ever received, or what if what's among the greatest gifts you've ever received wasn't actually an item? And, and this isn't like anti-item. I've already established that. Like, I'm not your guy if you're looking for non-materialistic approaches to life. I'm very materialistic, so I'm not trying to do that. 
But what if the, some of the greatest gifts you, you've ever received were, were actually, was actually someone's, someone's wonder, someone's sincere interest in you? You know, like when, when someone leaned forward and suddenly was asking you questions and was taking an interest in your life and then was even following up later on? Like, like what if some of the most transformative gifts we've ever been given was, were those moments when people leaned forward and they like wanted to know you? Like you became your own endless list of mysteries and you just had this profound sense of like, they, they care. You know that? I, I heard a story recently about a guy named John O'Leary. We have his picture there, and, and John, of course, now is, I don't know, what is he, in his 40s, but, but when he was nine years old, he was walking home from school, and he saw these two 11-year-old boys uh, messing around, and they were actually playing with fire, and there was something about his nine-year-old self that quickly emulated them, and he recognized very quickly that he couldn't manufacture the peach fuzz on his face, and he couldn't skip two grades, but he could play with fire, and that's what they were doing. And so a couple weeks later, while his dad was away and his mom was out of the house with another one of his siblings, he was left alone with his 17-year-old brother, and he had his moment. He went into his attached two-car garage, found, had some matches that he'd stored away, started playing with them. And then, of course, uh, male pyromaniacs, that only lasts so long. And so then he grabbed a piece of cardboard, and he started lighting cardboard. And then he saw his dad's five-gallon gas can. And he thought, I'm, I'm going I'm to pour some, I'm going to like play with that. But when he grabbed it, he, it was completely full. So, you know, over 40 pounds of weight at this point. So he threw the burning cardboard on the floor, uh, wrapped his arms around the gas can, and just did everything he could to kind of tip some gas onto the cardboard. But it was the summer. And long before the liquid hit the flames, the flames chased the fumes inside the gas can. And with his body kind of wrapped around it, the thing exploded. He said his first thought was, my dad's going to kill me. <laughs> And then he thought, mom's going to be so mad. And he said he didn't even feel pain for several moments. Finally, at the thought of putting himself out didn't even occur to him. He ran into the house and was panicked, taking the fire with him. Finally, his 17-year-old brother heard him. He ran downstairs, wrapped him in a throw rug, took him outside. It took him a couple minutes uh, to get the fire padded out of him. Of course, called 911, took him to the ER. When he got to the ER, he was barely alive, and it was quickly determined that 90% of his body, basically uh, everything but his scalp and his face, was, was burned to the third degree. Now, this was uh, several decades ago, and at the time, he, he said uh, that you determined you, you, the likelihood of survival from third-degree burns by taking the percentage of your body that was burned to the third degree, so in his case, 90, and adding your age and subtracting from 100 that number. Get a 1% chance of survival. He still remembers uh, asking his mom if he was going to die, and she said, do you want to die? And he said, no. And, and, and what started there was this lifelong battle. Of course, he spent months and months in the hospital. But now as an adult man and a motivational speaker, you can listen to him tell his story on one of the more recent uh, Entree Leadership podcasts. It's well worth listening to. But one of the stories that he tells, or at least when asked, like, why did you survive? One of the major reasons he said he survived had everything to do with his, his main physician. He said his doctor, and he didn't know it at the time, but whereas uh, the majority of doctors, because listen, you, if you're a doctor, you know this, and your lives are so busy. Life is so busy at a doctor. And so as they're making their rounds before they have to go to the office and keep their office hours, he said most of the time they walk in, they talk about you, not to you, especially if you're a kid. They, they're there for a few seconds. They turn around, they walk out. He said, not his doctor. From the very first day, he said his doctor sat on his bed, looked at him, introduced himself, and said, hey, John, how, how are you doing? 
and they would talk. And he would say, ha, ha, ha. and then as days progressed and days turned into months, uh, he, he would say, so, so how was yesterday? Like, what, what made yesterday good? What made it bad? And it was always a conversation. And then he said he didn't stop there. See, a, a burn victim, uh, the, the main thing that threatens their life is infection. And the doctor knew that the doctors and nurses, they have something to do with that, but probably not as much as do the people on the lowest rung of the medical totem pole the cleaning staff. And so on the first or second day, the doctor walked out and he found a a, a guy who, I mean, we're talking intro level, like uncelebrated position. He grabbed a guy named Lavelle. He was in charge of cleaning that floor of the hospital. And he said, hey, Lavelle, come in here. Lavelle came in. He said, Lavelle, sit down on his bed. And the three of them sat there. He said, hey, Lavelle, this is John. John, this is Lavelle. And he looked at Lavelle and he said, Lavelle, John has a third degree burns over 90% of his body. If he's going to live, it's going to be because you kept this place as clean as humanly possible. In the following days and weeks, he would often pull Lavelle in, he said, and he, he would have Lavelle sit on the bed and he would say, Hey, Lavelle, look at John. Lavelle, John's alive today because of you. Thanks. Thanks, Lavelle. And when he couldn't find a Lavelle or a cleaning staff, he would grab an RN or, or an LPN or any kind of tech or staff, and he would bring them in and sit them on their bed and just say, like, talk to each other. He would introduce them. He would say to John, John, you're alive because of this nurse here. Thank her. He, he actually, this happened in the St. Louis area. This doctor was instrumental in kind of rallying the community. One day, Jack Buck showed up in John's room. Jack Buck, the famous announcer for the St. Louis Cardinals. And Jack sat there. And he talked. And Jack made a habit of returning at least on a weekly basis. At one point, an autographed baseball of Ozzie Smith showed up in the mail. And in it was a note from Jack Buck that said, hey, when you, when you write a thank you note back to Ozzie, you'll get another one. So Jack knew what he was doing. He, he, was, he was wooing this young guy, this nine-year-old kid, into his physical therapy by teach, forcing him to begin to write. In the end, he got 45 baseballs. <laughs> from Ozzie Smith. Interest. That's what I want to get you thinking about. What, what is the value of someone's sincere interest in you? And maybe we could ask it this way. Who, who are they? Because you, you wouldn't be in the room if they didn't exist. Who, who are they? What's their name? Did, 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 are they the reason why you're, you do the job that you do? Were they a parent? Now listen, when we get into this category, one of the things we have to be careful about is we can dwell on who they aren't. The mom, the dad, the grandparent, the coach, the person that led us down. There's a ditch over there, and that's an important thing to process through and pay attention to, and I hope you're getting help with that, and I would love to help you get help with that, but let's just avoid that ditch this morning. Not who aren't they, not who failed you, who served you, who, who are they? Who are the people that, that suddenly saw something in you and it's why you do what you do? Who, who are the people that, that suddenly paid attention to you, who leaned forward, who seemed to want to ask far more than they wanted to tell, who cared deeply about you, who called you? I have a friend right now, and I'm so disappointed in myself, who's, who's in the, the deepest depths of despair, a guy that I have so much respect for that I used to do life with. I knew that he was going through it. I just assumed that everyone else was calling I finally picked up the phone this last Friday and said, how are you doing? He said, no, no, nobody's calling. 
And I began to ask him, like, what, what about this? Because, you know, in my insecurity, I'm going, well, there's all these people who you're much closer to than me. Certainly they called. They called. No, they didn't call. They didn't call. They didn't call. Who, who, who are the ones that in those moments for you drew you out? Who, who cared deeply? And as we move into this Christmas season, what if... What if we were the types of people who understood just how valuable someone's sincere interest in you really is? I was thinking about it this week, and I think, you know, I don't, I don't follow Jesus because he's true. Now, don't get me wrong. I think it is true. But if I were to be honest, there's all kinds of wise things I don't do, even though they're true. I realized this week I followed Jesus because when I was 19 years old and intrigued by him, a guy named Fred said, hey, let's have lunch. And we had lunch. It was weird. He's in his 50s. I'm 19. I'm like, is this supposed to be? I don't even know what to do with this. And we had lunch, and it was great. And we talked a lot about Jesus and following him and serving him. And a couple months later, he called again. And a couple months later, he he called again. And it took almost a year for me to understand, like, okay, so I should reciprocate in this. Who, Who were the people that looked at you and said, like, hey, maybe you should pursue this. Maybe you could give your life to this. Maybe you could matter in, in this way. And I think one of the questions then that we're asking is, are, are we aware, and I don't mean to be patronizing, but, but are we aware of the power of a question? I, I walked away from a circumstance this week where I was just so disappointed again in myself of like, Adam, you once again forgot. We are in a culture that doesn't listen. Nobody cares what anybody has to say. We're playing this war, and it's a bullet point war. And when they're sharing yours, you're formulating, your, when they're sharing theirs, you're formulating yours in your head. Nobody's really listening. And I had this moment of like, Adam, you forgot that one of the, I think, more subtle truths in the text that questions carry far more power and value than does anything else. And to me, there's a very ironic illustration of this all the way back at the beginning of the text. In Genesis 3, now listen, you you might go like, oh, Genesis, I don't believe Genesis. There's no way it happened in six days. Let's just not get hung up there. Listen, you you don't read anything because because you think it's true. That's why you read it is determine whether or not it's true. So let's just like slow down and don't get too caught up on that just yet. But in Genesis 3... There's this story that you're probably familiar with on some level about a serpent who wants to destroy everything good. Well, let's just read Genesis 3. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He's more crafty. So, so think this. Like This, this serpent is, is diametrically, if you believe in spiritual things, opposed to everything God, everything good, everything beautiful, everything just, everything true, everything pure. This, this being, this entity, this, this thing, whatever you want to call it, this power, this force, it hates human thriving. It hates joy. It hates love. It hates justice. It hates anything good. And its sole purpose in life is to sabotage it. And so what does it do? Does it strap a bomb to its belly and walk into a crowd? Does it show up at a sporting event with a handgun? Interesting to me, it doesn't do any of those things. He shows up and the serpent said, He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? This serpent is trying to destroy everything God's trying to create. And it does what? It asks a question. And of course, it's asking a question that is based upon a lie. 
It, it's, it's suggesting that, that, that God said, don't eat from any tree. And then, of course, we know that from the text, that's not true. It, it's the reminder that, that sin is always, it, it hasn't had anything creative to say since Genesis chapter 3. It's always saying God wants to limit our fulfillment and happiness, and that's not the story. But it asks Eve a question. Maybe you could just spend your chair time on this this week. Why did it ask her a question? And how much different is the story if he showed up and said to Eve, God said not to eat from any uh, trees in the garden. How much different might the interaction have been at that point? Would he have maybe, maybe knowingly, or is this why he did it, to avoid an adversarial relationship where suddenly they're at odds with one another? Did he create a conversation? Does he understand that what we believe is true doesn't really matter? It's what we own is true that really changes our lives. Does he understand that there's something about question and the power of suggestion and something that happens in the human soul when we're not told something, but we actually think it through for ourselves? Do you you, you see here, uh, again, I don't mean to be patronizing, the serpent... If you believe the whole good, evil, God, his enemy, that that, that God is for your thriving and someone is against your thriving, if you believe that, do you see the whole domino series started not with a statement, but with a question? What is the power of of a question? And, And I wonder, in our sincere desire to love if we understand the power of question. And it's fascinating to me that when God shows up, because you could quickly conclude like, oh, so, pe- so questions are evil. Therefore, we should all just know everything and give everything with a period at the end, never a question, because that was tricky. And maybe we could conclude that were it not for how God enters into the story. Because C- God shows up and he asks four questions before he says anything. Never a bullet point, never a truth, never a creed. He shows up and he asks questions. He shows up first, but the Lord called to the man, where are you? Now, is this symbolic of a God who suddenly forgot everything? This God who created everything and knows everything suddenly can't find Adam and Eve. Like, oh, those pesky kids always taking off their clothes and slipping into the shrubbery. Like, is that the issue here? Did God suddenly lose track of them? Or is God trying to help them see things and know that if, they, if he can help them see that and they can kind of think their way there, everybody's better? He asks another question. He says, who? Who told you that you were naked? Again, did, 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 did the God of the universe suddenly not know something that was going on in his universe? Or was the real question, do you know? Because what I know doesn't really help you what, what do you understand about the person who just did this? Who told you? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? Did, did God suddenly not know that they ate from the tree? How much different if God shows up and said, you, and with this kind of fierce bravado said, you ate from the tree. How much different might their response have been? Did, 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 wait, 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 wait a minute. Did you eat? Seriously, did you eat from the tree? How much different... Then the stern face. Then God said to the woman, what is this, what is this you have done? Do, do, do you even understand the ramifications of this? Would you like my help figuring this out? Do, do you understand the full-scale consequences of this? Are you aware of what's going on here? Would you like to have a conversation? 
What if, what if questions, what if among the presents and the gifts that we can give, what if sincere interest is among the most rare? Jim Collins, if, if you're a regular here, you know, is, is one, of, one of my, uh, I suppose, mentors from afar who I consider a hero, but I'll, I've never met. Jim, Jim Collins, who, who um, is a professor, he's an accomplished writer. He's like, there's the Dosekis guy, and then there's Jim Collins. And like, the, Jim Collins is way more interesting. Uh, Jim Collins has, has written several best-selling books. One of them uh, has been published in over 35 different languages. So, I mean, if you're looking for someone who's accomplished and interesting, Jim Collins has, has not only done a lot of writing, he's taught at Stanford, not at the undergrad, but at the graduate level. Not only has he taught at Stanford, he received the Distinguished Teaching Award at Stanford. And even in his hobbies, he's interesting. He's a climber, and he's climbed, is it El Capitan? Did I say that right? And yet Jim says his golden rule of interaction is not to be interesting, but to be interested. He said he learned it one year while he was teaching at the campus. There was an, an old retired guy who, who had spent lots of times in leadership, worked for Lyndon Johnson's staff in the White House, had done lots of things, more or less volunteered towards the end of his life to just be around and help develop the staff. And in 30 seconds, Jim Collins said that guy changed his life. Because having observed him in several contexts, doing several different things, he pulled him aside one day in a hall and said, Hey, Jim, it strikes me that your goal is to be interesting. What if instead you sought to be interested? He said, Jim, I understand you, you want to have dinner with interesting people. What if, what if you just had whoever, you made whoever you were having dinner with interesting? He said, Jim, I understand you want to have interesting things to say. So what if you just took a sincere interest in every person you were ever with? Jim, what if every person you ever met, you found yourself fascinated in them? You, you asked them, like, where, who are you? Where have you been? What is your story? What have you learned? What can I learn from you? And Jim Collins says from that day forward, he understood that the key to leadership and the key to influence is not what you know but what you ask. Warren Bennis says it this way, and I I find this to, to be such a challenge. Go ahead, next slide. He says, boredom is what happens when I fail to make someone interesting. Kind of a challenge, isn't it? Listen, we're coming off of this season where we talked about simple but demanding and and, and had this bold, audacious claim that what God calls us to is to love him by loving people, to take all that is packed into the cross and the grace of God, to know that figuring him out perfectly is not the goal, but to love people as though you were him is the goal. We're coming out of that. And I guess the, the, the tool that I want to explore and we're going to spend some, some more time on this, even as it, as it comes to our relationship with God, is what, what, if, what if loving people, I mean, really loving people, what, what, what if the real opportunity is to take an interest in them, to care, to, to, to know their story, to, to follow up on things, to show up in conversations and focus less on what you want to say and more on what you want to know. I mean, there's this game we play. And listen, uh, I think it's Martin Luther who said we most need to hear this. Uh, how does he say that? That We most need to hear. No, the sermons we preach best are the ones we most need to hear. So I'm first. Like, I'm not pointing any fingers. But have you noticed the game we play? 
Or we show up and it's like we tell this story and then, and then they tell their story. But while they're telling their story, we're thinking about our next story. Or, or there's that thing that we do. And when I do it, I'm so frustrated with myself. And when it happens to me, I'm so frustrated with the situation. You know, where, where you say something for like two minutes and then that spurs them off. And oh, yeah, one time this happened to my kids and blah, blah, blah. And then you got a 10-minute story. And then again, you try to ask it so you say something else. And then that, do, do you know this game that I'm talking about? What if loving people isn't about what we know but what we don't know, it strikes me that even, even Jesus goes here in Matthew chapter 7. And, and if you want to dig deeper into this, Dallas Willard does great work with this in The Divine Conspiracy. But in Matthew chapter 7, he, he says something that is, I think, one of the most misaligned verses out there. But, but he says this, and we'll uh, unpack a little bit. He said, do not give the dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If they do, they, 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 they may trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. Now, oftentimes uh, when we quote this verse or when we explain this verse, we're making it sound like don't give unworthy people truth. That's not what he's saying. In fact, if you read the five verses before this, that's the whole, like, it's, it's everybody's favorite section of Jesus' teaching, the whole do not judge or you'll be judged. So he's talking about interpersonal relationships and, and, and the way that we relate in the kingdom. And then he says, don't cast pearls to the swine. And what he's talking about there is the simple fact that, that a dog, a, a, a crucifix is really no use to a dog. And a pearl ring is of really no use to a pig. See, what, what he's saying is if you keep giving people things they can't use, then eventually they'll just devour you. Because a pig can't live on pearl rings, but he can live on humans. And the suggestion, according to Dallas Willard, and I, I pose it for your consideration, I suppose is that what's at issue here is Jesus saying, don't give your helpful solutions to other people's problems when they're not looking for them. Don't give them your truisms, however true they may be, when they're, when they're not interested and they're not leaning forward and they don't care to know. I, I wonder how many stories you could tell of damage you've done to relationships because you could see it. Like it was a train wreck. You knew it was a train wreck. You had the answer. You had the solution to their business. You, you, you could see it, right? And you insisted upon sharing it. And what's more offensive than to have someone cram their truth down your throat when you really don't want to hear it? So Jesus says, don't, don't, don't do that. Why, why did the serpent ask a question? I, I think he knew God's sermon. Just ask. Because listen to the way Jesus continues. Uh, ask and it will be given to you. This is the next verse. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you'll find. Knock and the door will be opened. And you go, wait a minute, that's about prayer. Kinda. Like he gets at how we relate to God. But that text originally is in the context of how we relate to people. First of all, he says, don't condemn. Don't judge people. Don't control them via your rejection. Then he says, don't force feed them your truths. Make sure they actually want them. So then how do we relate? I'm out of bullets. He goes, why don't, why don't you just ask? Why, why, why don't you just seek? Well, what is seeking? It, it, it's mystery, isn't it? It's pursuit. Knock. What, what, what does knocking remind us but that the latch to the heart is on the inside? It doesn't matter how true it is. It's, it's whether or not they, they want to hear it. One of the exercises that was helpful for me, I woke up one morning and had one of those, like, 
I knew too much and asked too little kind of hangovers. And I was so frustrated with myself. And I opened, this was months ago, and I opened my Evernote and just started going like, okay, so what's the value of a question? I think that could be a good chair time uh, conversation. And by the way, the notes page this week is pretty robust with lots of different uh, ideas because we had to cut a lot. But what's the value of a question? Like interpersonally, relationally. What what does a question do in a relationship with another person? Doesn't it it establish mutuality? Like if I ask you a question, then I'm not not claiming superiority. I'm, I'm, I'm entering in equal status. That doesn't a question, when, when I, it forces me to slow down. One guy, there's a great book uh, that's on your notes page as well. One of the things he said is that the psychological research would say when we want to be heard, our tendency is to gear up. And we go faster and we talk faster and we say more and we know more. And he would say, clinically, psychologically speaking, the opposite's true. When you want to be heard, you, you, you need to slow down and ask questions. Doesn't asking questions... Isn't that what facilitates real, authentic, honest, other-centeredness? Because suddenly it's not about what we know. Uh, here's, here's kind of a, uh, maybe a verbose statement. Henry Cloud calls this verbal masturbation. He says what most people do in their interpersonal interactions is the equivalent of conversational masturbation. It's really not about them. It's about me. It's not about what do you get from this. It's about what do I get from this. And we do this thing, and it's not relational in the least. It's all about me. Well, what happens personally when we ask questions? Well, doesn't it spark creativity? John Maxwell, a very accomplished and respected leader, he says, looking back over the course of his 50-plus years of leadership, he's in his 70s now, he said he can see now that every time he was stuck, he failed to ask a question. Every time he hit a wall, professionally, personally, relationally, he just kept powering through, trying to use old answers. Uh, there, there, there's a, a, a great book called Iconoclast written by a guy named Gregory Burns. He, he talks about just from, from a physiology standpoint, your brain is lazy. Our brain loves to plug and play old solutions to new problems. The, the reason we so naturally drive the same route and walk the same route and do the same things is he said your, your, your brain hates novelty. It's terrified of it. Well, what does a question do? It forces us, doesn't it, to break through our preconceived notions, our past experiences, that the fact that we know all this stuff, and it causes us to kind of humbly go, okay, Lord, what do you, what do you have? I've, I've titled this, this weekend, Small Me, Big You. And I think the question that we're trying to ask is, can you imagine, can you imagine what would happen if a community is seemingly small and insignificant as this community called Narrate, can you imagine if we collectively became the types of friends and the types of coworkers, the types of people who were far less interested in what we know and far more interested in what we don't? Can you imagine how much more approachable it would make you as a friend, a coworker, a confidant, if, if, if your skill 
was to ask them questions. Can you imagine what would happen in your desire to love people and even point them to the life that is ours in Christ if you had this ability to be deeply interested in them, to become a student of them, and then weeks later to have the the mental intentionality to follow up with them and go like, hey, so how did that go? How was that job interview? How, How was that thing? How are you doing with that? How's your dad doing? Can you imagine? See, it makes me think, I wonder, I wonder if, if part of the purpose of a robust prayer life is that it puts us in a posture, in a situation where we get to blab and we get to process with God and we get to tell and we get to unload And I'm not saying that it's not important that we have relationships where we do this, but I wonder if we don't have a heavenly father with whom we do that, maybe that's why when we get with people, it's all about us because we have to have those outlets. You know, I I, I think as I reflect on all this, that one of the profound things about God, and listen, I don't know where you're at with Jesus, but to me, one of the profound things about Jesus is that he'll never tell you anything to do until he first knows how deeply he cares about you. And I wonder if part of the reason why we find God to be so unapproachable and so distant is we're afraid to draw close to him. And what we don't know is he is a God who will listen long before he tells. I don't know about you, but I have the sense that when I arrive with God in heaven, I will have had far more wrong than I do right. And if that's a safe conclusion, then what that tells me is that God is far more interested in listening and interacting than he is correcting me on everything I do wrong. Don't get me wrong. I think God is holy and righteous and completely other. What if the reason you don't find God approachable is because you've never had anyone in your life who really listened. Listen, here's my challenge to you, whether you follow Jesus or not. What if if you started every day this week with 15 minutes? Read from the Gospel of John if you don't know where to start. Read for just a few. And then my challenge to you is to take a deep breath and to be still. And I wonder, I wonder how God will reveal himself to you in that. I wonder if he will fulfill your expectation that he's going to line you out or if what he's first and foremost going to do is affirm how deeply he cares about you, how much he wants you to thrive. And maybe, yeah, maybe he is going to point out like, okay, let's work on this thing. And it might take us the next 40 years to get that one figured out. Can you imagine what would happen if a community of people really believed that it's not just about truth, it's about relationship, it's about knowing and being known, it's about listening, it's about being the type of person who can ask questions that can lead people places, that can sincerely listen. Can you imagine what would happen? What happens on Thanksgiving? That's why we're doing this series. 
But what happens on Christmas Eve? What, what, what happens? If we could take up this lost art of interest in another. Listen, if you're someone that, that really wants to follow Jesus and isn't really sure where to get started, I, please let us know that. Myself, the staff, whoever you came with. Let's pray. God, thanks God that you love us despite our imperfections and our ignorance. Thanks God that you listen. Thanks God that that your desire is so authentically to know us. God, would you make us the types of people who, who, who slow down, who gear down, who focus on the endless mystery of other people's stories, who, not, not because it's an agenda that'll work, but because our, our desire to, to love people as you love people is so sincere that, that we would understand the wisdom of interest, of wonder. And may that be the gift, God, that we give over and over and over again. Amen. If you would like to engage further with Narrate Church, you can find contact information online, www.narratechurch.org. We would love to hear from you.